If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Tallgrass begs to differ. Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of Stuffy McLawyer Pants Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess because they're nerds over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan is exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more, because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pot for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pot for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940 or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Rant9 Productions and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. I am, as always, today and forever, your chief philanthropist, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your Vice Admiral Philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today, our guest is Tierra Estes, founder and executive director of Teach Not Punish. We talked to Tierra about what it means to teach not punish, the importance of building relationships, and the many times Jesse and I were unfairly, may I say, punished and not taught. 100% accurate. Enjoy. We are very excited to have Tierra on the podcast today. Hello. Hello. So I heard about your organization, I think like two years ago at a Black Women Entrepreneurs Summit I was at. Okay. Don't ask why I was there um, <laughs> as a white man, but I was there. I was just sort of fascinated from that point, but I'm going to let you tell us what Teach Not Punish is. Sure. So Teach Not Punish is a nonprofit organization, first and foremost, that focuses on supporting the community in overcoming adversity. Our admission is to enhance families' access to community resources and help them build resilience through the educational opportunities that we have for families, teachers, and children. I'm a Tulsa native, and I, my family and I moved to Texas at this point about 10 years ago. That's where I began as a teacher. And so I was a special education teacher as well as a kindergarten teacher in the beginning. After those two positions, I transitioned into a behavior specialist. And in preparation of that role, I was actually a behavior interventionist. In preparation of that role, I attended a training through PBIS, which is Positive Behavior Interventions and Support. It's a framework uh, to shape behavior. 
in preparation of my position, I learned about positive reinforcement and such. I came across a quote by uh, a guy by the last name Herner. I can't recall his first name at this time, but it talked about if a child wants to know how to read, we teach. If a child wants to know how to swim, we teach. If a child wants to know how to drive, we teach. And then the last sentence said, if a child if a child doesn't know how to behave, do we teach or punish? And then it said, why can't we finish the last sentence the same as the others? And so that quote really, it shook me more as a parent, because at that time I had two children and I didn't find myself to be aligned with the principles and such. I didn't feel like I taught my children in a way that I was sure when I implemented consequences, especially a consequence as a whooping or a spanking, if I had really taught them the expectation and gave them a chance to practice it and all of that. And so uh, I was very convicted as a parent. As a teacher, I was pretty patient with my students. And so that's where Teach Not Punish came from. I went on and filled the position as a behavior interventionist after about three months or so, I, I started to have very sleepless nights because I had something on my mind. I didn't know what it was. And it happened over time, like weeks. And so one night I ran into my husband's studio and I said, I know what it is. It's Teach Not Punish. It's Teach Not Punish. And so I created a Facebook page called Teach Not Punish, sharing parenting tools and teaching tools, just what I was learning at the time um, with others because I felt like they would benefit as a teacher and as a parent. Chris and I's school experience was similar in the sense where we were mildly punished quite a bit. Uh, and by punished, I mean we were just sent out in the hallway because teachers were just too exhausted to deal with us at that particular moment. <laughs> oh. uh, you know, Which, again, gave me lots of time to think about why I was there and what I wasn't actually learning in the classroom to begin with. And, uh, and sort of the, I remember the patterns of the floor tiles. I spent a lot of time analyzing that. Mm. So, okay. Yeah. Chris and I both bro- grew up in Broken Arrow. So, technically, from here, again, Broken Arrow, get your shit together. <laughs> but, you know, from our, our, our limited experience as reading partners, volunteers in Tulsa Public Schools, like I noticed that there seems to be a sort of straight to punish sort of thing for these teachers who obviously have classes that are too big to begin with. Mm-hmm. And especially for the last two years, have been under sort of immense stress. But, sure. How do you, work with the education system if, if you even do to like make it so that it's that it's teach not punish mm-hmm. well first i'd like to say i know what it's like as a lead teacher teacher of record and to manage a classroom with too many students or just with different personalities it's challenging it's challenging to do it in an effective way and you really only learn through experience i was alternatively certified so i didn't have an um I didn't major in education. I minored in special ed, but majored in sociology. And so I've always had an interest in why people behave the way they do. But it's it's just difficult. You have to be very intentional and then track over time how you're how you're applying it. And in that process, you do need a support system to do it in the same way we support students. So we want to provide that same type of support for teachers as well as they're learning new ways to discipline in the classroom, uh, and then also collect data because that's what it's all about. Well, that's what it should be all about, collecting, making decisions based on data. It is. It can be difficult to 
I guess, internalize what it means to teach, not punish, because consequences are necessary. And we're not saying that you should or shouldn't do a thing. We're saying be intentional about teaching. And then if there's a way to measure how you've taught over time and you're still not showing results that you that you're looking for, then you can decide what type of consequence and not relying on just one single one, you know, just having different ways you can implement consequences in your classroom or even at home. You speak of data. I mean, data has shown that punishments like suspensions are disproportionately applied in schools. And it does seem to impact people of color, people of lower economic status, and certain areas of Tulsa differently than it does others. Sure. I mean, is that part of what you're trying to attack with this? Absolutely, yes. We understand that relationships make all the difference. And naturally, uh, you behave in the way that you are most familiar with. If if you have a student with a different culture, there are just naturally things you just don't know uh, or understand uh, without building a relationship. And so I think that sometimes uh, tolerance, especially knowing all the other expectations teachers have, they just don't want to tolerate something that goes or something that distracts other students from learning, which they should not. However, there are ways that you can set up your environment uh, to create structure and predictability where students will respond to it. Most students will. And then those who do not, then you'd have to consider, is it a um, skill deficient where they just need practice or is it psychological where there needs to be an assessment done? And so we expect that our support will provide that practice for students or it will provide the data to make a decision about their psychological needs. I never thought about the cultural difference that I was running into with my teachers who were telling me I was too loud, not realizing, like, again, for my family, like, that was a regular volume, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> that ne- like, it never occurred to me to connect my Judaism that way to teachers who I was the first Jewish student they ever had. And, like, just telling me to be quiet, like, was not going to work. I didn't know I was being loud. I was just yes. being me. So, yes. uh, that, 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 again, all the things that, are in your head that you don't realize are in your head, like the cultural differences that say a, a white teacher runs into a white Christian teacher in Oklahoma would run into when they meet someone different from them mm-hmm. in a multitude of ways. That, that's, that's fascinating. How do you transition into to parents and sort of families, Sure, you know, cause a lot of parents just get a report from their school or a call from their school. They have to come pick up their kid or the kid got in trouble again. Or uh, in my case, he won't have any friends if you don't put him on medication at some point. This oh. was in the fourth grade. Um, after my parents delayed on purpose, uh, putting me on medication, which is fine. Uh, those years were fun too. Um, <laughs> how do parents know what has been tried at school with, with their kids to know what to do at home or what not to do at home, I guess? Well, the only way parents are aware of what happens in, at school is if they have communication with the teachers and mm-hmm. open dialogue with their children. And that's what we promote as well, you know, creating, having conversations about what's happening, creating spaces where parents and teachers can share what's happening and not necessarily only communicating when a student is acting out, being sure to communicate when they're doing well, you know, 
offline stuff, just, you know, what they're doing in the community, just having conversations to build a relationship, that trust that is needed between the the two. There is a distrust between schools and families, especially if you are a family, like the parents themselves have experienced adversity in school because of their behavior. So they automatically are like, oh, well, you know, they know how it goes. And so it's just it's just about being intentional about um, building the relationships to help students shape the behavior that they need to stay in class. And it's not about what, you know, a behavior specialist will do, the teacher will do, a parent will do with a student. It's about what they all do together, together to get to the result of the student choosing to behave appropriately in class. I saw on your website that it references that behavior takes practice in the same way that any skill that they learn in school. And yes. to me, that was something that, you know, kind of like Jesse's mentioned that y- you don't really think about, but once somebody says it, it's like, it, it kind of is obvious. It's just something that people don't really think about and, and yes. don't really teach. Yes. So how, how do, I mean, what does that look like actually having students or adults practice the behavior that they they want. That comes in different ways. Uh, we believe in role playing. Feels cringy. You know, we think about role play. We call it uh, live demonstration. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> role play is like, oh, I don't really want to do that. Right. Um, but the only way that you can really assess if a student teacher or whatever is applying the skill that they're being taught is if you practice it or if you observe them in a natural environment. And so, again, it's just about uh, the relationship and then also being intentional about what you're assessing and then providing the support as they're learning. How has the organization been handling the pandemic and how that sort of, like, kids were still in school remotely, but you can't really punish someone remotely because they can just sign off and not be in school anymore. And so, like, how did it all work? Oh, virtual. instruction was very interesting. At the time when when COVID first hit, I was managing most of Teach Not Punish, honestly. I'm the executive director, but at that time, I was also the behavior specialist uh, working with students directly. We just had to think about how we can offer it in a virtual platform. And it was fairly successful because it's one-on-one. It's a person that you've not worked with before. Uh, we believe in a lot of positive reinforcement and just talking to kids to figure out, you know, what their interests are and in general, just building the relationship. And so we were able, I was able to do that in that, in that virtual space where students didn't want our sessions to end. When we were all finished teaching all the social skills that we teach, they were like, wait, what? I want to go over, I want to come over your house. I want to play with your kids. And like, are you, this is the last time that we'll work together. I'm like, yes, but when school's back in, I'll see you around or whatnot. And so it it was effective based on we had individual attention with some students, but then very difficult for the younger students who, I mean, virtual is just difficult for young kids anyway. But, you know, we did have to be very innovative in, in like creating the activity packets and delivering them to homes on the programming part. But one thing that we did in the beginning of the pandemic is also help with resources like food. And so we found a gap um, where <laughs> families without transportation needed food. And so we identified folks without transportation and were able to deliver food to them. So we were just kind of uh, filling gaps. Well, not kind of. We were filling gaps in the community in general. And then as far as our programming goes, just being innovative. We even had 
an option to where <laughs> I recorded lessons and then the lessons were sent to the to the uh, the students or their families was posted on Canvas or however they accessed the lessons. And it was optional. It wasn't like working with students. So that was interesting recording. I felt like Blue's Clues <laughs> because I was in, I was putting in like sound effects and stuff. <laughs> That's what I had in mind. Blues clues is like (laughs) (laughs) really trying to help students engage if they came across our lesson or if their parents, you know, told them to get on or something. But then after we kind of, you know, um, strategized how what's the best way we were able to develop a one on one and um, and help our partners and and helping their students access social skill development. Uh, I mean, I've noticed the online virtual setting is great for small groups or one-on-one it did not seem to work great for like a full classroom and and i I don't know how you solve that problem well i mean a way is we get rid of the virus yeah we still haven't figured that piece out either yeah uh i mean again the listeners of this podcast are majority of them are probably already vaccinated but in case you are somehow not uh, vaccinated already pot for good listener what's wrong with you (laughs) yeah we we are most effective in person Mm -hmm. not that Virtual can't be an option. It's a great way to expand, you know, because we've had parents say, you know, we'd like for our kids to participate. And that's an option, especially if, if it's not local. But best is in person, of course. You're able to make connections and and just the face-to-face connection is just different than what you can get virtually. There's a lot of well-established science that shows that positive reinforcement is generally more effective, effective than negative reinforcement, be it with kids. Adults, pets, I mean, yes. why does it seem like it's, for a lot of people, they still go back to negative reinforcement? It could be because when we're stressed, we revert to what we know. A lot of times when we're stressed, it's hard for us to rationally detach and make a sound decision because that's just how our, our, our bodies are made. You know, if you're triggered in any kind of way, you literally check out. You know, depending and depending on how good you are in managing your stress will determine the time that you're that you're checked out or not. And so it's, again, just about being intentional and and having access to new ways of managing, Um, having a toolkit, you know, a toolbox of strategies to say, okay, right now I recognize what's happening. Let me try this and see if that is effective or not. But generally, it's because it's what we've always done is how we were raised. And so it's a paradigm shift that has to take place. And a lot of aha moments, you know, even when you think about a focus of behavior, and I say behavior is a prerequisite to academics, you would think, oh, well, actually it is, because guess what? If a student can't behave, they're not going to be in class. And so we should teach them how to behave almost in the same way as academics, direct instruction, not just a conversation here or there. In the same way you would teach math, reading, science, and social studies. And so that is what we provide, that direct instruction and then the cooperative activity for them to practice and get feedback, immediate feedback and how they're doing. And then even an opportunity to push in their classrooms to uh, support the teacher and the other students in the classroom. Because usually little Johnny is not the only one that needs something to learn the four steps of following instructions. You know, and who's ever broke down the four steps for following instructions? I didn't know there were four steps. Well, you so. want me to tell you? Yes, I would. Yeah. Are? Okay. So the curriculum that we've built from Boys Town Educational Model uh, provides the social skills uh, that we teach students. And so 
the four steps for following instructions, and we do it with hand motions because multisensory learning is important for students. First step is you look at the person. That's the first thing you do. Why do you look at the person? There's a conversation you take so you can, so they know that you're listening or so that you can know that they're paying attention to you. You know, you unpack this with the student. So the first step is you look at the person. The next step is you say, okay. What makes you need to say, okay. And then that's a conversation that you have. The third step to following instruction is you do it now. Not when you feel like it, (laughs) not in five seconds. And you may demonstrate what five seconds. And then we may talk about what's the reason you should do it right now, because I might forget. Or we do it right now, stay out of trouble. You know, these are the (laughs) answers kids uh, say. And the last step is you check back. After you've, you follow the instruction, you go back to the person who gave the instruction, let them know, I'm done, or is there anything else? So if you look at the person, you say, okay, you do it now, and check back. Those are the four instructions, four steps to following instruction for anybody. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, I could see that being incredibly effective in, a, in just like a regular work environment. Too. Yeah. Uh, it's everything, not just yeah. for kids. Like, Every, everything but the saying okay verbally is how you, is how you do, you know, um, uh, what's it called? Um, active listening. Yes. Right. And also it's it's a good interview skill, you know, other than giving direct verbal uh, feedback, which you don't want to do because then it just makes the podcast sound busy. But those are all things like like write down your question. If you're not mm-hmm. talking about it right now, make eye contact, obviously. But yes. the especially the the do it right now and yep. then check back. I mean, that's I'm, I'm that gra- I, yeah. so much so much breakdown. And you're like, OK, how do I do something? All right, now I'm going to go do it in three hours and completely forgotten what I was supposed to do exactly. and, yeah. and everything well, else. Um, you know, when I was when I was trying to make myself more productive at work, I you know looked up one of those productivity systems, the the get things done uh, system, and one of their things is if it's going to take less than five minutes, do it right now, mm-hmm. and that really sort of helped me sort of categorize my sort of two different kinds of tasks. Like, okay, I need to email these four people back. That will take less than five minutes. I'm going to do that now because if I don't do it now, I'm going to forget. Yes. So that I mean, but. Again, I had to learn that as an adult because it wasn't. We weren't we were taught that? No. Yeah. I was taught to sit quietly, which I realize now, like, if they had made that into a game where I got points for sitting quietly, <laughs> like, I mean, that's why ADHD, ADHD kids can play video games for long periods of time. We're getting little, little right. rewards every five seconds, sure. right? That would have helped me. I would have, mm-hmm. if, if there was a goal to accomplish, but sure. just sitting still for sitting still sake was never going to work. Yeah. yeah. And so after you tell little Johnny or the class, boys and girls, get your math book out and turn to page 50, you may not need the whole class to say, okay, but then there's a conversation you say, I know it's okay if you're doing it right now, Mm -hmm. you know? And so if you notice, you know, little Johnny, he's pit paddling, he's not getting his book out and turning to the page. That's when you would, you would provide corrective teaching and say, Little Johnny, I see that you're almost on task. You always want to start with like a connection or empathy or something like mm-hmm. that and say, but right now you're not following instructions. My instructions were to get your book out. And you, but if you're following instructions, you look at me, you say, okay, you do it now and check back. Let me see you practice. Let's try it again. Little Johnny, get your book out. Turn to page 50. Look at me. Say, okay. And then that's, and then after he does it or not, depending on, you know, how he responds, then you say, thank you for following instructions. And you move on. So, so it's a method. It's so the, a method the, to the madness. The focus then becomes on the steps of following instruction rather than you're not paying attention or you're not doing what I said. So it's yes. a, it's shifting the focus to the here's, skill. here's the skill. Yes. Let's practice the skill. And it gives teachers a 
way to reinforce. So then mm-hmm. we would leave posters of the skill with the teacher so that in the moment she can refer back. And then we have tickets that have the skills on it. So if the teacher sees little Johnny following instructions, she says, thank you for following instructions. So it's a positive reinforcement system you have in your classroom. And I remember you said, Jesse, about uh, not knowing what you're doing, right? There's a strategy we have called coupling statements. You tell a student what they're doing and what they should be doing. And so because a lot of students don't know what they're doing. So little Johnny's standing in his standing up at his desk. If I want him to sit down, I'd, I'd say, Johnny, you're standing. You should be sitting. Yeah, that, that's give it, listen, this conversation's giving me flashbacks because uh, <laughs> there were some teachers who got it and they're like, Jesse, what are you doing? Because I'd be like tapping my pencil. I'd be like, you're tapping your pencil. You're not supposed to be doing that. I'd be like, oh, huh, no shit. I'm tapping my pencil. And then I would yeah. stop. You know, there's. There's so many ways a teacher can positively interact with a student without like embarrassing them or calling them out, Mm -hmm. you know, Jesse, stop doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, uh, what I, uh, there's like six things I'm doing right now. So (laughs) which one is a problem? Mm -hmm. I Uh, mean, I always say it's okay for a teacher to be a broken record. Mm -hmm. Predictability is good in the classroom. We want students to know what to expect, whether it's positive or negative. They know if they make this choice, this is what will happen. If they make this choice, this is what will happen. And so, um, you know, just creating that environment where students don't have to guess what will happen next and then giving teachers the language to use over and over again. They don't care. Students mm-hmm. don't care if they hear the same thing. They just want to know what to expect. That's the best way that they learn. And so that's one of the strategies that we teach. So it sounds like it would take a lot of patience from from a, from a teacher to stick to it and not... Oh, yeah you know, revert back to something that maybe, I mean, it's a little easier at the moment to. Sure. It definitely. Tell a kid to get, get out and go talk to yeah. the lockers. Like yeah. one of our teachers used yep. to say. It's a temporary fix, mm-hmm. but we want to focus on long-term outcomes, you mm-hmm. know, to, to address the suspension rate and the school to prison pipeline and that sort of deal. Um, it's, it's a different approach that people aren't comfortable with because it does take a lot of effort and patience and, buy-in even, you know, um, because I'm not endorsing teachers not having support for behavior, challenging behavior in the classroom. It's saying, mm-hmm. okay, what's happening? And let's try these these strategies to see if it gets better. And while you're trying these strategies, I'm here to support you. I'll give you feedback based on observation. Uh, I'll, I'll support the student in learning the skill. I'll talk with the parents so the parent can reinforce these same skills at home. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's it's all of us working together. Very holistic approach for sure. And it, it feels like it hopefully alleviates some of the smaller behavioral issues so that maybe behavioral intervention is only needed with larger, more serious problems in the classroom. Yes. And and, you know, behavior interventions, it, depending on the school, there's a tiered system. There's a universal way in which you address behavior and then there's a more focused way where you're trying to determine if it's more serious to where you need a, like a, an evaluation done or not. And so we usually come in in a proactive way and wanting to teach the students, ideally in the beginning of the year, <laughs> what the expectations are and these skills. And then if students aren't responding to the universal approach, like what the teacher is asking them to do and such, then we come in and provide that more specialized support uh, to learn if it's, it's good, efficient, or psychological or not. What do you do? How do you help a student who has gone through like a year of, of class with a teacher who is just not doing the sort of positive reinforcement part? And, you know, if you do that enough, how do you get a student to come back 
to that? How do you like sort of re-engage with a student who feels like the teachers are never really there to help them mm-hmm. and, you know, are coming from the mindset of like maybe generational problems with schools? Sure. Like what, what, what's like step one? And I hate to be a broken record right now, but it really is about relationship building. It really is, uh, especially for the students who are disconnected. Because guess what? Those disconnected students are the ones who have the power in your classroom because they're going to get the attention, the power, um, avoid or revenge in your room. We have to identify what the function of the behavior is. And, and those are the four functions that I just mentioned that Boys Town recognizes. And once we recognize what the function of the behavior is, we can fulfill that need. And so if it's attention, little Johnny needs attention. And so he's learned that whether it's good or bad attention, he can get it if he behaves this way. We can strategize and think about how to give little Johnny attention without him needing to jock for it. And then that's where you go from there. It's always a reset. When there's a new school year, you know, I'm big on, listen, what happened last year was last year. You've matured. You just really pump kids up. Like you've matured. You've had a summer, you know, just really focus on growth, having a growth mindset, clean state, even daily. You know, what happened yesterday was yesterday. You have a new start today. You know, I believe in you. You can do it. And I'm here to support you. And then uh, along the way, teachers just have to even, (laughs) I hate to say this. Even if a teacher doesn't like a child because of the frustration related to the behavior or whatever it is, they just have to have discipline to not show it. Because once a student sees that his teacher, he's, he's getting under his teacher's skin or she, you know, the teacher is turning red because of what you're doing, they will feed off of it. Yes, they will. <laughs> <laughs> and, and once a, a, a child believes that a teacher does not like them, it really changes things. And so, um, yeah, it's it's really about building relationships. It really is. And um, if that sounds good and easy and all, it is, it's not. It's just, if, if, it, if it were easy, we wouldn't be in the condition we're in with our schools. But it's, you know, a lot of adversity comes from not being intentional about building the relationships and trust and then having a, having structure for accountability. That's what we expect to uh, provide our partners. So how do you facilitate that relationship building? I mean, we talked about that some parents have distrust of the school systems. Um, So how do you how do you bridge that relationship so that they get back involved, that the teachers are involved with the parents? Sure. So one way is that we provide opportunities for them to engage with one another. And so that might look like a parent engagement, like a parent support group where we invite teachers, or that may look like creating opportunities for them to engage that are offline. You know, maybe it's, maybe a lot of times people need to be taken out of an environment, you know, and and interact to build a different connection. And, And also, like the behavior specialist role is to teach the skills and support the teachers and such. But then we also have partners like mental health professionals who come in and help help families or students process through trauma, process through trauma, help them access resources that that they need to overcome challenges, like as far as like tangible resources, all of that impacts your behavior. And so when a child shows up to school, you know, and they're, and they're acting out, you have to wonder what's happening, you know, uh, and embrace 
that all of that that comes with it. And a lot of times teachers just don't have the capacity to do it. And that's why it's important for schools to partner with community organizations who can fill those gaps and um, and, and meet the need to build that trust between the family and schools. It's impossible not to look at this and see parallels with society in general, that society in general tends to want to punish instead of teach, which is why we have such a high incarceration issue, uh, you know, rate in, in our state and in the country in general. Are there parallels for what you do in school that mm-hmm. can be applied to society more generally? Oh, absolutely, because equity is important. And so, you know, unfortunately, we still have a very a system that's not equitable for everyone. And and that's the purpose of our organization is to improve access to resources so that we have equity. And that comes through information and exposure. You know, there are some things I'll take me as a, an athlete. So I played basketball most of my childhood and um, I traveled, you know, with an AAU team and such. And so I had a desire to leave Tulsa and explore more because I'd been places and I'm like, oh, I want to do that, you know, and and maybe... I would have not saw that the experiences I had in Tulsa, which I did not enjoy all of them, weren't normal if I hadn't been exposed to other places and other people through playing sports and such. And then having access to um, just those types of experiences through my friends, you know, and their and their families who would take me along with them on vacations and all of that. And so it's really just about exposure and, and providing options for people. And that's in general, you know, um, because at the end of the day, if you don't, you don't know what you don't know, you know, and you just continue on like it's that that's just the way it is until you see something different. And you're like, oh, well, I can I can I can try that or at least you should try it to see if you get a a more a result that's more aligned to what you want. Let's talk about your nonprofit as a whole. So when this episode comes out, it's going to be a couple days before your 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 gala. And so, you know, tell our listeners. Obviously, they should give your organization money because it's great and it's needed. But do you have goals for 2021, 2022 that you're trying to raise funds for? Is it just to keep the lights on? Like, tell us, like, give us the the deets. Sure. Well, it's all of it. Like you said, lights on and goals. Yes, all of it. (laughs) All right. All of it, people. (laughs) Yes. Uh, But we are focusing on early childhood this year. And so we were recently awarded a grant from the Best Initiative, which is Birth to Eight Strategy Tulsa focusing on families with children birth to eight. And so that will be our focus, uh, focusing on early childhood teachers, families and that and such. Although we will also invite, you know, other uh, age groups, but that is our focus this year. Um, just learning how we can support that demographic for sure. And research shows that by the age of 10, you basically we are who we are by the age of 10. And after that, it's a choice to change. And so when you think about those early years of life being so impactful, I mean, my goodness, you know, like 10 years determines <laughs> that, explains, that explains a lot about my life. No, no, <laughs> think about it. Unless you say, unless you assess yourself, like I, I've always had the mind of a scientist. And in fifth grade, I was about 10, right? And um, I realized like, oof, if I don't get myself together, I'm not getting in Carver. <laughs> I'm just not, I, I knew that. I was like, and I hadn't even been here. I I, I uh, spent first to third grade in Germany because my dad was in the military. And so although I was 
I was well, I was actually born in Germany, came back here from, you know, months old to seven and then went to Germany. But even being here for that short period of time, I knew that Carver was the place I wanted to be and how I behaved at Burroughs, which I that's where I went to school, was not to par to get into Carver. So I said, okay, let me get myself together, you know, but um, every child doesn't have that that foresight, you know, and they just plow forward and behave the way they've always behaved. And then these are the results they get. They don't have opportunities because of how they're showing up. And so that's why that age group, that early childhood, you know, before 10 is so important because it's what we experience during that time effect of, of impacts our life. Uh, Burroughs was the the school I was sent to that they were the only one that had the only school that had an intermediate first grade when I was held back in the first grade. So mm-hmm. I went to Burroughs for one year. So <laughs> anyway. transitional first. Yeah, trans- I guess that's what it's called. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I call it the intermediate first grade. I'm not sure why. It was first grade with naps is how I understood it. <laughs> well, so. I know that because I also attended transitional first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was still not good at napping. I still failed. I always failed at napping. Did not want to nap. So well, well I had to for pretend. me, uh, I was eventually diagnosed as dyslexia, with dyslexia. And that's why when you said that about your wife, I was like, huh. Um, and so just the way I retain information, even now, it, it's like, you know, it's hard for me to store to long-term memory because of being dyslexic. It's fascinating. Like, yeah, yeah the, 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 how everyone, every person on, on the planet has a different way of taking something from short-term memory and what happens if it does or does not make it to long-term memory is fascinating to me because some things I'll instantly remember forever. And then mm-hmm. some like Simpsons quotes, for example, <laughs> and then other things I will forget instantaneously, even if I want to remember it. Right. And I just, my brain's like, no, we're thinking about something else now. Mm-hmm. So the brain uh, is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Brain's a real son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, uh, can you give us some details about the upcoming gala? Yes. Oh, yes. Parties. Oh yes. That's what we were talking about. Yes. So, um, I brought up the funding because we we did receive a lot of programmatic costs from that grant. We have other costs associated with our programming and our our overall organization. And so the gala is for general operations. Um, since the funding we receive is more focused on our full time behavior specialist, whoop, whoop. <laughs> first employment, yes, first em- full time employee. Uh, and so we need funding to operate everything else that goes along with our program. And so that's what we're raising money for. So are you not a full-time employee of the nonprofit you run? I am not. That's that. That's not uncommon, especially here in <laughs> no. Oklahoma. So yeah. it was so important for me to secure this, the positions who will help us long-term and then also help me move solely in my position as ED. And so I'm, I, I am genuinely about creating support systems, even for mm-hmm. myself. Yes. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> Makes sense. So, um, so what, when's the, what's the when and where for the gala? Yes. So our gala is August 14th. It's Saturday, August 14th at 630. We'll hold it at the historic Greenwood Culture Center. And so that's where we'll be. It's a uh, 20s attire celebrating the once thriving North Tulsa community before the massacre in 1921. Just remembering that we are able to build our community up as it was before and restore what we had so that we can provide a future for our children. You know, we we are a family organization, family resource center. Our focus is supporting the children and the folks who will shape the children's behavior. And so uh, that's what we'll we'll celebrate on the 14th. We have some entertainment, we have raffles, but we're there to fundraise for the organization so that we can sustain over time and 
build out, you know, the more robust organization that we have in store, as well as open a early childhood school in 2023. So we have big plans. We have big plans mm-hmm. for our community. Would someone in a inflatable T-Rex costume that has a monocle and a top hat be acceptable at this party? Yes. Okay. Top hats. Just, top hats. I just pulled that out of the top of my head. All right. Yes. I actually, okay. my, my husband's 6'8 and nothing needs to make him look taller. Oh, but yeah. I thought that he would look very nice in a top hat. So at first I was trying to think of a costume where he could wear one. <laughs> Nice. I like that. Yeah, like a 20s ma- uh, magician, I guess, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I still have uh, plenty of uh, 20s outfits from, uh, I used to be on the board of um, Tulsa Hub. And so we okay. we had a 1920s themed fundraiser most years called called Spokeasy. So I still have plenty of attire from that. So There may or may not be a video of me in an inflatable T-Rex costume at said party. So <laughs> Dancing with Brandon. Yeah. Yep. That was, that, was, that was a fun night. Uh, uh, tip to our listeners, you can only dance in that costume for about 10 minutes before you need to hydrate. So do not push yourself as I did twice. So uh, along those lines, so how can, how can people uh, connect with you, connect with the organization, find information about the gala, everything else? Sure. So if you go to our website, www.teachnotpunish.com. You can find all things Teach Not Punish on there, uh, as well as other community resources here. We have a tab for community resources and then information about our gala is there as well. That's where you can purchase tickets and such. And so we do have individual tickets as well as sponsorships. And we've actually gotten a really good response from from local sponsors. And so we're very appreciative of that. Other than that, follow us on social media, mainly Facebook, because as I mentioned until recently, I was it was one <laughs> one person's show, and so uh, we are more active on Facebook and share more things there. Um, but we're teaching that punish on all social medias. If you want to contact me, you can reach me by email t.estes at teachnotpunish.com. Send me a message on any social media platform. Um, you can also call us at our phone number nine one eight eight one five seven five five five. And I'm assuming this gala will be a sort of a masked event. Yes. So we are recommending masks and we will have masks available for anyone who wants to to have one following all COVID protocol, especially with what's happening now. And so we definitely encourage folks to uh, bring a mask, wear a mask. And if you don't have one, we have one for you. Do you have Teach Not Punish masks? We're I, would totally about, wear I would totally wear one of those. So. We're thinking about providing those masks, but, you know, we're nonprofit. We want to spend our funding wisely. And so mm-hmm. we'll see. All right. Well, the the last thing that we ask people when they're on the podcast and we're doing the interview in person is to sort of look around the my nerd studio and find something that either calls to you or calls to you in a way where you're like, I want to know what this is. Please, exp- please, please tell me. <laughs> James Brown. <laughs> yeah, you want you want about the James Brown? Yeah. He's very popular. Yes. <laughs> so okay, again, I'm trying to trace the story of this. I think. So I got it from my mom. My mom bought it for me. And I think we saw it at a store once. And I just, I think it's one of the things where I saw it when I was younger. And then she got it for me later as an adult. And, you know, you hit it and he he sings, I feel good. And he dances. Um, (laughs) Apparently, like I did that dance. So uh, a lot as a child. Uh, Now it's broken and plays a creepy sound when you hit the button. It's pretty pretty horrifying. We'll we'll play it for you off air. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) But yeah, the James Brown dolls just fall. I. I haven't gotten rid of it, even though it doesn't work anymore, because uh, just it reminds me of my mom. It's so. symbolic. Yeah, it's good. yeah. I, for a while, he was in the. Anytime I was doing a Zoom or a online recording of a podcast, he was always in the background with a mask on. So mm. okay. <laughs> you couldn't really see him, but he was there. 
So yeah. well, we say it's the small things that matter most. Mm-hmm. That's that's a small thing that's significant. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a, it's not even that small. It's no. pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> so it's one of the biggest things in this room. Yeah. I just have to ask: Is there any anything we should have asked you that we didn't ask? Yes, you about? Ooh, that's a good question. I feel like we've covered a lot, but we haven't asked a lot about you personally. Oh, yeah, that's we true. So is there anything we haven't asked? Yes, that tell us about you. Or our listeners should know. Uh, well, yes. Uh, I can say, I can share an experience with you all. Sure. So as an educator coming in, I guess maybe because I look young and maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. A lot of times as a behavior specialist, teachers will look at me like, what do you know? You know, <laughs> what do you know? And wh- what do you have to offer me? Because you seem young. And so uh, a lot of times I, I will need to share my personal story so they know, oh, okay, she, she, she might know a little something, something, you know? And so um, I am the mother of four kids. Uh, my husband and I have been married 15 years. We have, our youngest child is one. Our oldest is 20. Oh. <laughs> well, no, she'll be 20 in October. I'm giving her, giving her some months. <laughs> um, and so uh, I've had a lot of adverse experiences. Uh, not not adverse. I've had a lot of adverse experiences, but I've had a lot of life experiences that I bring to the table, um, you know, personally and professionally. You know, I'm really invested in Tulsa because this is the community that I grew up in. I know what my experiences were um, as a young, you know, teenage mother. And then as a single mother, my husband and I ended up getting married, you know, when we were 23 and he flew out of a car at 26 and, and, and had a brain injury and all of that. And so that really changed our lives. And at that point I had to, you know, hold down, hold it down for the family and needed community resources during that time. And so I, I uh, spent a lot of time trying to figure out what resources were in the community. And so Based on my personal experiences and pers- professional experiences, that's the reason I created Teach Not Punish, because in life we have adverse experiences. And during those times specifically, you need support systems and know where to go. And so we want to be where someone goes if they need support. Um, and so that's the type, those are the type of partnerships we, uh, we are interested in, you know, that provide support to families. And then, of course, the organizations that work with uh, students like schools. And so it all comes from uh, Teach Not Punish, you know, the creation of it comes from pain points and then also overcoming adversity because I know what it takes to uh, be resilient. And so since I, I have that information, I want to share it so that it, hopefully, you know, someone else cannot have such um, an experience that I, that, that I did because of the support system that they have. Because your support system, uh, may look different. Everyone doesn't have family they can rely on. I did. And that was very, very needed and useful. And then friends too. So you may need professional support systems. And so that's what we'd like to to provide. Well, thank you so much for yeah, uh, uh, taking time You're to talk welcome. with us and for driving to my house, even though both of you thought this was a remote interview. So again, I apologize. <laughs> um, thank you so much. And for our listeners, please either uh, support them via their website or go to their gala and put on your best flappers outfit. So yeah, may as well. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, things happening right now. And this is a good one that is happening. Our our gala, you know, coming together, the fundraise for programming that's needed in the Tulsa community. So thank you all for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Tierra. Please, you can follow her on Facebook. Go to teachnotpunish.com. 
to support them. And please follow Pod for Good on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and even join the one and only Joya Cleveland as our one Patreon follower. And of course, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. As always, that's okay. As always, get it done, Tulsa, and wear a mask. And if you and if you haven't gotten vaccinated, get vaccinated. Also, if you send your kids to school, have them wear masks. We should be over this already. I'm tired. Thank you.